Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to episode 404 of The Whole View. I'm almost getting used to saying that. I was just thinking today when I was getting ready, I was like, wow, it's been a month since we've changed over. How are you <laughs> feeling about it, Sarah? <laughs> I um, So I was in conversation with one of my team members the uh, day before yesterday, and we were talking about the podcast and talking about you know some questions that we had come in and how, you know where we were going to put these in our arc over the next few episodes and um and I realized like partway through the call that I was absolutely awesomely every single time referring to the podcast as the whole view and I I was so proud of myself because now let's be honest I have a puppy an 11 week old puppy and I am not getting enough sleep and stringing together coherent sentences is starting to become a challenge. So the fact that I had made the switch to the new podcast name in my head so that it just came out organically in a conversation about the podcast, I mean, there should have been like confetti flying for that. That That's a huge achievement, I think. I agree. And listeners, if you've been listening for a long time, it's probably the same for you. If you're new, it doesn't feel that way, but it. It's been over seven years. It would be like changing your child's name when they were seven <laughs> years old. And then, yeah. of course, you're going to accidentally slip up and refer to it a little bit differently. So I am um, I am sleeping better, probably, than you. I am feeling well. I know our, our listeners have been so kind and thoughtful and sending positive vibes and messages my way. And I just want to thank everyone for all of that. I have been using my pulse ox and yesterday my heart rate was completely back to normal and I was at 99% and I haven't had any symptoms. This is my fourth day of being symptom free. So I feel like I can finally, I'm still a little bit holding my breath, (laughs) but I feel like I can um, breathe a sigh of relief. And uh, Matt went back to work as of today, two days ago. Um, by the time you listen to this, he will have been back at work a week. But um, yeah, we we are doing well. And um, I have really no updates since the last podcast, because when we recorded, um, I was on the up and up. And I think just the shortness of breath is very similar to like when you get pneumonia or when you have some mm. other type of illness like that, even though you're quote unquote recovered, like it takes a long time for your body to rebuild back that strength and just like get back to normal. So I would say we still have, especially me, a little bit of shortness of breath, but I, I genuinely think that's just like my, my body. Yeah, the lungs need to heal now. Yeah. Like there was obviously inflammation, which would have caused a little bit of damage. I think the, the, um, for anybody who, any of our listeners who've had pneumonia, I've had it eight times, I think. Um, it's funny how you can lose track of things like that, but you actually really can. Um, and that lingering like several months before you really feel like you're a hundred percent is, um, the, the, my, my two, like the two experiences of pneumonia that I think always stick with me, that's one. And then the like, 
pain of coughing is always like the other one, like those two things, because they're so distinct and I've never experienced them outside of pneumonia. Um, so I, um, I have been, um, wanting to do antibody testing to know for sure whether or not I've had it. And, um, and when I do do this, I will absolutely give all of our listeners an update, but it's one of those interesting things where I go, well, there was, you know, a week towards the end of February when we knew we had community spread here where, you know, yep, I didn't finish a couple of dinners because I lost interest in my meal and I had a dry cough and I ran 99 for, you know, fever, which for me is high because I normally run cold. Maybe that was it. And the, the hypothesizing in my head that really becomes like a unhealthy, um, like perseveration, I think needs, it's time to get a data point and, and just know for sure. But, uh, I'm interested to know you're getting your antibody testing pretty soon, right? Tomorrow, actually. Um, so I'll be able to tell you next time we talk how it went and all of that. I honestly am not anticipating having the antibodies and I, I know that I wish that I had them. And I think part of my anticipation is not wanting to be disappointed, Mm -hmm. but we've talked before on the show about neutralizing antibodies or not. And because all of us were so mild, uh, me more so me more less than anyone else. Um, More, not as mild, not as mild, worse case than still very mild considering the um, range that we've talked about on the show, like in the spectrum of things, our whole family had it very, very mild. So I'm, just saying to myself, it might not have been enough to create neutralizing antibodies and or or enough to be detected. Yeah, like you might just have. I'm sure you have them. Like, I'm sure you have them. It's just whether or not there's enough to to be above the sensitivity of the of whatever test the, they'll they'll run. So yeah, that's the other thing that I'm trying to figure out because there are. Uh, this is not a COVID show, by the way, everybody. This is just just chit chat update before we get into the meat of the show. Um, but there's the quality of the antibody tests is a huge range, and so that's one of the things that I have yet to actually research. Is like, okay, which tests are actually available to me because I can get them in a couple of different places now locally. I could do a mail order one. So, like, which one is going to be the best option to give me the most reliable results. Um, and then how much do I cry if it's negative? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say I have read that the longer I wait, the more likely it is to show up. So when, if it's negative tomorrow and you figure out which test is best, I will probably, (laughs) I will probably do it again a few weeks later just to validate because, um, you know, there's no harm. There's no harm in trying to know uh, where we are. And that's, that's the wrap up of my story of COVID is just knowledge is power. <laughs> Knowing I believe that all the time. I know that is I think that's really like the tagline of our show if someone hadn't already coined it. But you know, from everything from the pulse ox to, you know, knowing your temperature and um doing the breathing exercises that I mentioned to being able to test your 
um, your breath hold time, different kinds of things like that. That knowledge, all of that has been the best thing for the whole family as we recovered. And now I can say we are recovered and I would really like to move on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's do that and talk about uh, dog food. I am so excited to have another pet show. Um, I told Matt that the last pet show that we had was really kind of like an uplifting. I feel like there's just so much worry and stress going on in the world that the idea of focusing on pets, you and I both have dogs that we are insanely in love with and Mm -hmm. we apologize for the goo that's going to come out because I know (laughs) when I was a cat person and I heard people talk about their dogs the way Sarah and I feel about our dogs I would like vomit a little in my mouth and then have to swallow it back so for all of you cat people just every time we you know mention our dogs just remember we also have cats we We also you know we're just we're talking about pets in general but I am sure that we will reference how much we love our dogs approximately 4,000 872 times on this show. So for that, for that, just be prepared. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what's fascinating to me about this is um, this was a question that you wanted me to cover. Oh, probably for the last few months. Like it's probably been on my like to-do list for yeah, at least three months, if not four. That gave me a hard time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then we actually got a question uh, come into uh, our uh, podcast email asking about this before our last pet show, which is actually the question that um, is in my notes that I'm going to read from Ashley. But then also after our last pet show and after I um, sent a like announcement of my, my puppy um, to my newsletter subscribers, the most common question that I got back was this exact same question of like, what what do I feed? What do I feed my dog? And all of these different uh, things that the internet tells us will kill our dogs. So let me read Ashley's question because I think that'll help uh, bring some structure to this conversation. Also, um, she starts it off with lots of nice words. So never uh, listeners, that is always the key to getting your question read on the show. That and being a mind reader for questions, I will also continue to push to Sarah. Those... <laughs> That's the number two reasons. (laughs) Also asking a question that has already been a topic we've discussed. Yes, that, that, that too. So Ashley wrote, hi, Sarah and Stacy. I started listening to the podcast several years ago while I was living in New York City. Every evening after work, I would get on the train, put in my headphones and listen to an episode. I guess I'm one of the listeners you are always apologizing to for the early episodes. I have to say, I truly enjoyed them all and have learned so much valuable information. Thank you for all the hard work you both do to educate and entertain your listeners. I feel like we are friends at this point and I still look forward to a new episode every week. The Paleo View, which is now The Whole View, is my favorite podcast, hands down. Yeah, no question why we also love you. Clearly. <laughs> I, I believe, yes, we are friends, Ashley. Yes. As a person eating a nutrient-dense, anti-inflammatory diet myself, I am wondering how to feed my dog in the same way. My husband and I recently added a Bernadoodle puppy to our family, and he is the most adorable and mischievous little guy. 
there is so much conflicting information out there about what diet is best for dogs. They need grains, they don't need grains. Raw is best, raw is dangerous. Most dog food is so highly processed and contains ingredients that to me seem highly inflammatory and nutrient poor. The organic and grain-free foods look good on paper, but then I read about concerns with grain-free diets and heart problems in dogs. I like the idea of a raw diet, but that also requires a lot more work on my part to source and prepare his food, which just isn't practical for my life right now. I would love to know the science on this topic so I can feel confident in what we are feeding our dog so that he can continue to be a healthy and happy pup. Please help. I'm excited for you to help (laughs) because I know. So here's just a little backstory is, you know, Sarah didn't have a dog when we got a dog and I did some research and made a food choice and I might have mentioned to you what it was, but we didn't have like an in-depth conversation until you were looking to get a puppy a few months ago. And then I was like, well, this is what I'm feeding Penny. And you looked into it and you were like, hey, this isn't so bad. I'm, uh, you actually gave it a thumbs up. And I was like, yes. So um, it is possible to have, you know, do your own research. But I know Sarah has the most knowledge and research on this because you know how she likes to tackle science and research on things that are you know important to her for those of you that don't know the whole reason that Sarah is the person she is is because she went paleo and was like oh if I'm gonna do this um, autoimmune especially I'm going to research it and understand the whys and the hows and then Mm. here we are how many years later so um (laughs) When Sarah, when you started talking about your preparation for your puppy, um, the amount of research that we talked about on the last dog show also applies to um, what to feed. And I will say um, I've had two veterinarians tell me that um, a grain-free diet for a dog is not good. A raw food diet for a dog is not good. And when I say, okay, well, what do you suggest and why? The foods that they recommend are exactly as Ashley indicates. They are um, foods that would be high inflammatory. And I know because um, Penny came in on that kind of dog food and because she has food sensitivities that cause um what I would call eczema in a dog, but it's like flaking Mm -hmm. of skin and itching and she chews at her paws and that kind of stuff. I know if we don't give her like the foods that she needs, she has a problem with dairy. She has a problem with a couple of things, then her skin gets irritated. So I know that she's affected by food the same way humans are. Um, So I'm really excited for you to dive into the science on that and, and help us all figure out in a positive way, how, um, what is the ideal diet? But I, before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that just as, you know, we humans make our own choices and you do the best that you can with the knowledge that you have, and maybe you decide that you're going to transition your pet to a different food after this, or maybe not. Like, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no coulda, shoulda, woulda. There's no, you know, I'm a bad person because I did this before. Or if this doesn't work for you and you like the food that you're giving your dog and your dog is healthy and happy, then that's okay too. Like, this is not us telling you what you need to do. This is the science on what would be optimal. And this is knowledge for you to be empowered to make your own choices. And also, just like we often put out the caveat that 
neither Stacy nor I are medical professionals, and nothing we say on this podcast should be a substitute for medical advice. Uh, we're also not veterinarians. So, um, what? I, how do you know that? I know. Well, <laughs> kidding. We're not. I'm kidding. Secret, secret, secret veterinarians. Um, no, we, neither one of us are. Um, but I, this is something, Stacy, I like how you said, uh, this is just how I live my life. It's, by doing research. It is really, really true. I'm just, um, it's how I process, uh, stress. It's how I prepare and manage change. It is, uh, just my personality, uh, is to, like, I often say I'm like a scientist, both by training and by nature. And this is what I mean. Like this, this deep dive into all of the science behind any given thing, whatever happens to come up in conversation that day is just how I navigate life. So um, I did do um, a few hundred hours worth of research before getting a puppy on all of the different aspects of what I was getting into. Um, and, And diet was one of those. So I thought it would be interesting to answer Ashley's question, starting with that sort of ancestral diet approach, because that's so consistent with how we approach food and not in the historical reenactment aspect. I'm not trying to exactly mimic hunter-gatherer diets with what I'm doing. I'm not going to throw on a toga and grab a spear and go live in the woods, but rather that I'm looking at the uh, foundation of the diet and trying to understand what it is that makes that diet, that ancestral diet, so optimal for human health. And that always brings me back to nutrient sufficiency, right? Meeting the body's nutrient needs is the primary criterion for a healthy diet. So what are, right, what are the nutritional needs of a dog and what is the ancestral diet that would help help to meet those. So let's start with talking about what wolves eat, and then we'll talk about the adaptations that domestication uh, actually drove in terms of evolutionary pressure. So wolves, um, actually dogs um, and the modern gray wolf share a common extinct ancestor. So here's a super fun fact, Stacey, that I did not know until I was researching this podcast, that um, there is great debate among biologists about whether or not dogs and wolves are the same species. And some biologists believe that dogs are a subspecies and all like other, right, dingoes and other sort of domesticated uh, dogs are subspecies of the gray wolf. (laughs) And other biologists believe that they are their own species and that wolves and dogs are separate species. Isn't that like cool? It is very cool. And also, when you said the word dingo, I felt like, <laughs> yeah. I felt like a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> just Who needed to put on an Australian accent. Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So anyways, whether they're uh, a subspecies or the same species, let's start with what wolves eat. So wolves are scavengers and hunters, um, and they really eat anything they can catch. So that goes all the way from small rodents, even some insects, all the way up to very, very large mammals. Um, And what they do is they eat the whole animal. And organ meat is always the first to be eaten. Um, if, uh, If the whole, right, the pack is hunting down a big animal, the highest level um, the alphas in the pack will get to eat 
the organ meat because they get to eat first and then it goes down. And that's actually part of how um, pack structure is maintained because the highest level in the pack actually get the most nutritious diet. So they stay the healthiest and the fittest. Um, so they're preferably eating the organ meat. Um, and in, except for like very rare cases of abundance, um, they eat everything. So they eat organ meat first, then they eat all of the muscles, then they eat um, typically the ribs. Um, a lot of small bones are are um, consumed or the larger bones are not on and partially consumed. They'll eat nearly all of the hide, um, including fur. Um, so they really do leave very little behind. Um, so if you see a carcass left behind by a pack of wolves, there's typically a skull, um, some, uh, you know, spine, uh, maybe some hip bones. And that's, that's about it. Um, and then the other thing that I found really interesting is, um, because this is going to be really relevant to dog diet is by eating the stomach and the intestines, wolves are actually getting a fair amount of plant matter that's partially digested. And then they also eat grass. Um, so this is one of the things that I have found uh, endlessly fascinating about my 11-week-old puppy is her obsession with grass and twigs and leaves and occasionally rocks, um, which she's not allowed to eat. Um, but actually we see this in wolves too. So there was a research that was actually testing for evidence of grass in wolf stool samples and found that up to half of the stool samples studied uh, had evidence of grass consumption. And um, uh, researchers believe that this is, um, there's probably some nutritional value from the grass, but that it's actually predominantly serving the purpose of purging the intestines of parasites because the grass sort of acts as this like long fibrous material that would like entangle a uh, intestinal worm or a nematode and actually allow it to be expelled in feces. So cool. Hopefully dogs don't need to eat grass to purge intestinal parasites. Um, but that's probably where that behavior actually stems from. So domestication um, has actually applied evolutionary pressure compared to the gray wolf. So we see actually some really interesting uh, genetic changes that have been selected for over a fairly short period of time. So the earliest evidence of dog domestication is about 40,000 years old. Um, that's still up for a large amount of debate among the scientists who study that. The earliest proof of uh, domesticated dogs is about 14,000 years old, which times actually fairly well with the advent of agriculture. So since, you know, the, the earliest known for sure, here's a domesticated dog up until now, the coexistence with humans as the human diet was changing with the advent of agriculture has also impacted uh, dogs. And actually domestication has more points of uh, change in terms of genetics than agriculture does in humans. So in humans, there's about 12 different points of genetic selection over that same 10 to 15,000 year time point. And in dogs, there's more like 30. Um, so what's fascinating though, is that about two thirds, like 19 different regions of um, genetic difference between domesticated dog and wolf refer to changes in the nervous system 
And it's thought that these are all underlying the behavioral changes that were basically central to dog domestication. So there's all of these different selection points that are why dogs want to be around humans and communicate with humans and are so engaged with us. Um, they're not, right, they're not aggressive towards us. They're trainable, like all of those different um, things that dogs have that wolves don't. That is what a large amount of the um, genetic uh, changes that have been driven by the evolutionary pressure of domestication uh, are about. But then there's also 10 genes that all uh, that have changed, that all have key roles in starch and digestion and fat metabolism. And what uh, separate studies have actually shown is that those genetic changes dramatically improve the dog's ability to digest starch relative to the wolf. And so we see that in um, amylase copy numbers, sort of similar to humans having uh, developed an increased ability to digest starch, but over, you know, more like 1.5 to 2 million years. Um, but so wolves only have two copies of the genes that allow them to, to digest starch. Um, dogs have between four and 30, which is huge. And then they also have a different form of the um, sugar digesting enzyme maltase um, that looks a lot more like the omnivore version or the herbivore version compared to the carnivore version that wolves have. So there's these sort of well-measured um, changes in dogs compared to wolves that have made them more adapted to eating more starch. Now that doesn't mean they're they are like need a grain-based diet. It doesn't mean that starches are the foundation of their optimal diet, um, but it implies that they need a little bit more starch and car carbohydrate than the wolf. Um, so not a grain-based diet. Dogs are still what's considered uh, facultative carnivores. Um, so facultative carnivores are not strict carnivores. So they eat um, some plant foods in addition to animal foods, um, but they can't thrive on a, a truly omnivorous diet. So they still need to eat the dominant amount of their calories from meat, um, but they're well adapted and may actually need a small amount of their diet to come from plants. And where science is sort of pointing is um, that really the optimal diet for dogs is similar to wolves. It's like whole prey approach, this whole animal approach. So eating really every bit of the animal that um, that is edible. I mean, you would probably not even necessarily claim that bones <laughs> and hide are edible, but really eating um, everything that that can be processed from an animal um, and that that should probably make up something like 85%, maybe 80% of, of the diet with a variety of plants making up the other 15%. Um, so that leads really well into the question of raw versus cooked. Um, and what I found, a PhD thesis, that actually this was the whole thesis, um, and we can put a link in the show notes so that any interested uh, listeners can go read it as well. Um, but what's fascinating about this thesis is that it was really an evaluation of um, raw food diets in terms of digestibility. Um, they were looking at um, various markers of, of health. They were looking at uh, stool and what was left behind in stool quality. 
um, and comparing that to processed kibble. And then they were also looking at safety. And um, they showed a couple of really interesting things. So one, they showed that um, the safety profile of raw food diets was was very high. Um, and so they say, sort of put a nail in the coffin to the myth of like raw food diets give dogs food poisoning. Obviously, if you gave your dog rotting meat or E. coli contaminated meat, you like you could give your dog food poisoning. Um, but the the raw food um, formulas that they were evaluating in this thesis uh, were all shown to be very, very safe. Can I ask a um, question? The, yeah. Do you happen to know um, if there has been contamination or recalls on non-raw dog food? Because I feel like, not I feel like, this is the point that both vets made with me. And the point was there's a higher risk of it being contaminated and there has been recalls on raw dog food before. And I'm like, are you telling me that there hasn't been recalls on regular dog food? Like that just seems surprising to me. There's been tons of recalls on regular dog food. I mean, that's, I mean, do you remember, do do you remember the melamine poisoning of what was that? 2007. I mean, that was on dog food and cat food. Um, it destroyed one of my cat's pancreases and he had diabetes ever since. Um, now, that wasn't an E. coli recall. I'd have to go look at all of the FDA recalls no, and no, see. No. But I, I'm, I just mean, yeah. by, by saying, I, I warn people who are going to listen to this research and, and make decisions about their dog food, that if you put your dog on a grain-free, especially a raw food, um, and that looks different, by the way, which we'll get into, like it's not, I remember seeing an Oprah special and... <laughs> Like seeing her actual raw dog food that she made, well, her team made for her dogs, that isn't necessarily what you need to do to put your dog on a grain-free raw dog food or whatever. But my point is that um, the number one thing that I heard from my vets when you take your dog in is like, what are they eating? Um, And so I feel like being armed with information, like, Mm -hmm. well, there's this many recalls on this, yes, but there's also recalls and risk up because of food quality on these other things or whatever it might be. Right. Like there, there can just be contamination. Sometimes it's not yeah. even about quality or whatever. Right. So um, I mentioned this as, as you mentioned the, uh, the point in the thesis, because um, that has been the absolute pushback for me. And it really made me question um, what I was feeding my dog until you and I had a conversation and we looked into the nutrients and um you helped me feel better about how um, the choices that I was making and why I was making them. But I also will say like, I was watching Penny really carefully. Um, I was watching her weight because she was underweight for a really long time. She doesn't like food. Part of that is she's picky and she didn't like some of the food we were giving her. Um, And also like, like I said, this skin scratchy, but now I've gone on a complete tangent. But what I'm saying is I made those choices for good reason, but I was still being questioned and doubting myself with a veterinarian. Um, And so I ended up finding a veterinarian now that I trust and that I could be honest with about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, Just the same way you would with like a medical professional is if that doctor isn't working for you, your vet or whatever, if you don't feel comfortable with them, Remember, they're providing a service to you. You're choosing to go there and give them your money. And if you don't feel comfortable or you don't feel like their beliefs align with your beliefs, you can always find another one. So end of tangent. 
So um, thank you for expanding on that because it gave me a chance to actually look up some data. Now, keep in mind, listeners, that I looked this up in a couple of minutes. And so um, it's totally possible that this data is not fully up to date. Um, it, this actually, I'm looking at an article from 2015. Um, so keep in mind that things could have changed in the last five years, but this answers at least the preliminary question. So it's looking at the five-year uh, FDA recall rate for salmonella contamination. And there were 26 total dog food recalls. 23 of them were kibble and 14 were raw food diets. So that actually implies that raw food is safer. Although, you know, again, I'm going to put throw on all of the caveats and say raw food diets have become more popular since, and it could just be and that that difference could be an artifact of how many people are feeding kibble versus how many people are feeding raw. But I look at those numbers and go, yeah, that's it probably means that safety profile is about the same. And 26 total recalls in five years also implies that the safety profile is just pretty good across the board. Like that's not a ton of recalls for salmonella contamination. Um, and especially given that that's one of the dominant um uh, concerns over raw food diet is uh, organism contamination, whereas typically the the concern on kibble diets is more like um, chemical contamination, right? Like the the melamine contamination in two thousand, I think it was two thousand seven, might have been two thousand eight. Um, so that to me, you know, that looks like a pretty equivalent safety profile. Um, so. Thanks for giving me the time to quickly look that up. Well, full disclosure, we might have edited the podcast to give you a few minutes to do that. Hush, but hush, <laughs> hush. Oh, but that's, nope, this nope, is why we... people behind the curtain. This is why we produce a podcast <laughs> so that we can give you good information. And, and because this has been um, a big factor for me, I just, I wanted to drill into that because I, I can't imagine that I'm the only one who has experienced that. So I love to arm people with information. Thank you, Sarah. Please continue. (laughs) (laughs) So this, this was my main take-home message from, um, reading this thesis and, um, uh, and actually it confirms a lot of the research that I was looking at beforehand. And it basically showed that, Raw diets were highly digestible. Processed kibble diets were not as digestible. So the the raw diets they were evaluating were like greater than 90% digestible and processed kibble were more like 80%. And that 10% difference is pretty, is that, that's a marked difference in terms of like how much of the volume of the food is actually usable nutrients. But what was interesting to me was that high quality kibble diets, our high quality um, cooked diets were also highly digestible. So um, they were actually equivalent. So it wasn't as much um, a question about whether or not the ingredients were raw so much as how processed they were. And so what you see in a lot of like the, the name brand processed kibbles is you'll see ingredients like extrudates, right? So that's like poultry byproduct meal, hydrolyzed proteins, uh, brewer's rice, which is a very refined rice or corn gluten meal, which is a very refined corn. And you're talking about ingredients that have undergone 
um, fair amount of processing, which strips vitamin and minerals, which is why vitamins and minerals are always added to those formulas. And then it also actually reduces the digestibility. So there was uh, another study, and we'll make sure there's links to all these studies in the show notes, that actually just looked at the digestibility of um, uh, it was actually poultry um, that had been extruded, which is a high heat processing, and showed that it uh, lowered the digestibility of that ingredient uh, to be, you know, similar to all of these other like highly processed ingredients. So what was interesting about this thesis is while it showed that a raw food diet was, you know, safe and um, highly digestible and you know very healthy. At the same time, it didn't um, it didn't make the case for raw food being better as long as you're comparing it to a high quality diet. So for me, what I took away from that um, and the similar research that I was doing as I was figuring out what I would feed my puppy was um, I care much more about the ingredients, the quality of the ingredients, and the processing of the ingredients rather than whether or not each ingredient is raw or cooked. Um, I just don't want an ingredient that is like super heat processed. So it can be cooked, just not um, pro- processed in such a way that would reduce its digestibility. The other thing that this thesis went into was looking at how the fiber content of food impacted digestibility. And what it made a case for was what they were calling animal fiber, which is that same like bone and hide and fur um, that wolves would eat, um, that whole prey type approach, because um, those, right, the, the structure of those parts of the prey, of, the, of a wolf, for example, um, actually allows it to have some prebiotic properties. So it actually supports the uh, wolf gut microbiome, and it looks like dogs need something very similar. And so um, one of the things that came out of this is you don't want too much fiber because too much fiber decreases digestibility, um, but you do need some fiber. Um, and it, that fiber should come from some sort of, again, this sort of like whole prey approach, as well as um, coming from some plant foods because dogs are adapted uh, to consuming a small portion of their diet from plant foods. This is super interesting for me, I think, because I had cats before, um, and I know (laughs) we're talking about dogs specifically, but I had cats before, and the conclusion is much different in cats in terms of, like, their food and um, being omnivores and how much they're getting and, and all of that. And so the mechanism behind why coming together is fascinating for me from wolves eating stomachs and getting plant matter that way. And then also Mm -hmm. food quality. And I think it's, it's reminiscent of my like early days at paleo effects and the um, anthropology talks and all of that. Like I'm, I'm soaking it up. So I actually was expecting, and I, I should be completely honest with this. As I was doing this research, I was expecting dogs to be better adapted to cooked food. And I'll tell you why. Um, so if you look at that time frame of domestication, uh, humans have been cooking for a lot longer, right? So humans have been cooking food, maybe even up to like 1.5 million years. And when you look at human evolution, you can see these like 
um, rapid increases in brain size that have happened with every dietary change that would have allowed an increase in um, digestibility of the food. So you can see a rapid increase in brain size when humans started eating, eating starchy tubers or early humans, very, very early humans. Um, and then you can also see this sort of similar increase when humans started cooking food. And there've been a bunch of studies. We actually talked about this uh, like way back in episode 304, when we we're talking about whether or not to eat raw or cooked vegetables, we actually talked about the research showing that cooking food, and this is the same whether you're looking at protein, carbs, or fat, actually increases our ability to absorb energy from that food. So it actually increases the digestibility of the food. And my thought was, you know, just like that ability to get more energy from the same amount of food. For humans, it's believed that that freed up time for more sort of like socialization, exploration, which allowed for tool development and that extra time, you know, basically using those brains helped to drive over generations, drive increased brains. And when you look at the time for domestication for dogs, um, dogs' lifespans being so much shorter, that's actually enough generations for um, evolution to a whole new species, although, again, biologists are, haven't concluded whether or not dogs are actually a subspecies of wolf or a different species, a sister species of wolf. But I was expecting that there would be a similar, a similar um, evolutionary benefit to eating cooked food scraps, right, of, as dogs were being domesticated and spending more time from humans and eating more of sort of like the leftover food that humans would have left behind, although they probably also hunted their own food for a large part of that domestication process, I I was expecting to see an adaptation to the higher digestibility of cooked foods for driving a lot of the um, changes that we see in the, a dog's neurobiology compared to a wolf that we also see in those other like 20 different, different genes. So I was actually more surprised to see that the research shows that uh, the quality of ingredient is much more important than whether or not the ingredient is raw or cooked, because I was expecting to see an advantage to cooked foods. I can see how you would have expected that. I think I just think back to how we all kind of originally evolve and I think you and I have come to the conclusion that like um like this conclusion that humans do well with both though right like mm -hmm. we so it makes sense to me that um because we also uh domesticated dogs and had much to do with how we fed them as we evolved over the last few hundred years as well. Um, yep. I mean, that's not much of an evolution, but do, you know what I mean? Um, that it would, it's, it's logical to me, this conclusion of, um, especially because you and I have talked so in depth about human digestion yeah. and what, how important variety is in general. Um, like I said, it's different for cats, which is fascinating to me. But then if I think about, what cats do and where cats come from uh, biologically, like what they're originating. And how much was. a shorter period of time since domestication for cats, much yeah. shorter. Yeah. Um, I, I don't much know shorter for you... every other animal. Dogs were the first. 
I don't know if you've seen those videos where they talk about like, you know, they show videos of cats just looking um, menacingly at humans. And then like they put the the quotation of what cats are thinking from the perspective of like coming from a lion not long ago. Like they think of themselves as um, still king of the castle and they just are frustrated with humans. Like I always put those voices on my cats. You know what I mean? Like they just yep. are different species. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Very different. Um, So that, I think, opens up this whole other question, which Ashley also asked about, which is the link between grain-free foods and diet-induced dilated cardiomyopathy. And this was a huge research point for me because um, I don't allow gluten in my home for my own safety. I even buy, like, super boutique-y fish food for my fish so that I don't touch gluten-y fish food. So, um, and that's just because I'm, I'm so incredibly sensitive. And so it was a real conundrum for me um, as I was doing this research to realize that there is a link between uh, grain-free foods um, and this, you know, basically this type of congestive heart failure that is not linked to genetics. I mean, there is a dilated cardiomyopathy that is linked to a gene. Um, and that is one of the you know reasons why I did so much research when I was figuring out where I was going to get Soka to make sure that um, her parents were genetically screened, both negative for all of the different problematic um, genetically linked health conditions. Um, but in, uh, 2018, there was this pretty big spike in, um, vets and veterinary cardiologists, uh, reporting to the FDA, um, these cases of dilated cardiomyopathy that did not seem to be linked to genetics. And, uh, just so that people know, um, what happens in dilated cardiomyopathy is, Again, it's sort of a type of congestive heart failure, so there's an enlarged heart, and then the symptoms are decreased energy, lethargy, a persistent cough, and difficulty breathing, loss of um, appetite, and eventually episodes of collapse, and it is life-threatening for dogs. Um, and also dogs can have sort of like a silent dilated cardiomyopathy for a long time where they're not showing signs of the disease as the disease is starting to progress. Um, so by the time you know that the dog is sick, it's progressed so far that there's not a lot of treatment options. And so it has a very high mortality rate, um, something like 20%. Um, so, um, what happened was the FDA then sort of made a call. They had in sort of July 2018, they they put out this like warning. Um, here's the one thing that seems to be in common between all of these different dogs is that they're almost all, 91% of them are on grain-free diets. And we don't know what's going on, but we're going to start studying this. And so they collected more data, they collected more cases, and then they re- released a report in July 2019 um, that was looking at all of the different um, correlations between uh, diet, different dog food ingredients, and um, dilated cardiomyopathy, and also um, tried to at least identify potential mechanisms. And so one of the things that they found, again, sort of 91% of the dogs in this, uh, it was about 530, I think, um, different cases that they were studying. Um, 91% of them were on grain-free diets. 93% of them had were on um, 
diets that were very, very high in peas and or lentils. Um, so that was actually, that's really important. And we'll, we'll get, we'll get to that again. Um, so, uh, peas and or lentils was actually a, a more substantial ingredient. About 40% were eating potatoes or sweet potatoes. Um, so that was potentially not as, as big of a link. Um, but also almost all of the dogs were on a kibble only dry food, grain-free diet high in peas and or lentils. Um, only nine of the 530 some odd cases were raw food diets. Only one was a home cooked diet. Um, uh, there was only 24 were fed a mixed diet. So, um, almost all of these diet, 400, almost all of these dogs, 452 out of, again, 530 were on a like grain-free kibble-based diet that was high in peas and lentils. So this is research that's ongoing. There's a couple of different labs across the country that are really trying to understand the mechanisms behind why, um, these particular grain-free diets are uh, causing diet, I mean, it's called, called diet-induced dilated cardiomyopathy for a reason. And the most likely mechanism is that there's some kind of anti-nutrient in the legumes that's blocking taurine absorption. So taurine is an amino acid um, that is exclusively, exclusively found in meat. It's not considered an essential nutrient for dogs because they can synthesize their own, but it may be conditionally essential. Um, so same as we have some amino acids that we can actually make, but we don't, you know, we need to get some from our diet because we can't actually make enough for our needs. Um, taurine may be that for dogs. And there's certain breeds of dog that um, are more prone to taurine deficiency. So they're more prone to not being able to make enough taurine. And that includes golden retrievers, which made up 20% of the affected dogs from the dilated cardiomyopathy. And that includes Labrador retrievers, which made up another 10%. Um, the, all the rest of, you know, there was a ton of other breeds, the 30 some odd different breeds that made up the other 70%. So that helps to bolster the hypothesis that what's driving this, again, is sort of like an anti-nutrient in peas and or lentils that is blocking taurine deficiency. The, the other piece of information that's helping to support this is that many of the dogs that had been diagnosed with diet-induced dilated cardiomyopathy responded really well to taurine supplements, even if they didn't measure as taurine deficient. Um, so again, there's something potentially blocking taurine absorption, or maybe even like a, a taurine pathway. A taurine is, is well known to be important for cardiovascular health. So the culprit is not necessarily the lack of grains in the diet, but the fact that the words grain-free don't automatically mean good. They don't mean high quality or nutritionally balanced. Just like we would say uh, the words gluten-free doesn't mean healthy for you. It just means free of gluten. You can get really processed, junky, you know, dessert foods that are gluten-free and dairy-free and nut-free, right? And top of free of all the top allergens that have no nutritional value and is still just basically like sugar and oxidized fats. So are you um, saying that's not a healthy permanent diet that I could just only eat those cupcakes a hundred percent of the time. And I might have problems with my health later. This I'm is... sorry. I'm sorry to break it to you. <laughs> no, I think I've this got is, some bad news. I think this is like such an important 
point to make, and I'm glad that you related it to that, because one of the things that I think about often with dog food is like, this is the thing that you're giving to your animal every day, all day, Mm -hmm. in most cases, right? Like, we intentionally feed Penny some uh, good human food, right? Like, when we have steak, we give her the gristle, or, you know what I mean? Like, different things like that. But for, um, for the most part, like, most people feed their pets one food all day, every day for a lifetime. And so, you know, if, if it is highly refined or processed, like you're indicating, like if you think about that from the perspective of that gluten-free food that I, I have absolutely no shame or guilt in saying are things that, for example, you know, we get, um, a gluten-free cake for someone's birthday and like, okay, that's, we eat that then. And then we move on and we eat like our regular food the rest of the time and our body has mm-hmm. time to adjust. And depending on what you're able to eat, like the inflammation of that one food or the the reaction that your body might have to it is entirely different than if you had that every day. <laughs> <For> breakfast, <laughs> and lunch and dinner. Totally. Mm, I mean, uh, it would be tasty. Um, yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, let's, let's remember that this is still, um, it's still an active area of research. Um, but basically, you know, what the, the current sort of conclusions from this are is to, if, is, if there is a reason to feed your dog a grain-free diet, for example, my reason is I do not want to be exposed to gluten on a daily basis. Um, and there are no gluten-free dog foods that aren't also grain-free. That was one of the things that I spent a long time looking for. I ended up calling my vet um, to ask for a recommendation. She was like, oh, no, that doesn't exist. Um, was like, well, maybe there's a, a good quality food out there that has rice, but that's actually like gluten gluten-free, but not necessarily strictly grain-free. And maybe that is a direction that I can go. And it doesn't exist. So the only way to get a food that is strictly gluten-free is to get a grain-free food. Um, And so it's really important to look for grain-free options uh, where peas and lentils are not in the top 10 ingredients. Um, So the top 10 ingredients are considered the major ingredients of a food, typically. Um, And so it's not that a small amount of peas and lentils is is terrible. So that analysis showed that peas and lentils were commonly um, in the top, even like three ingredients in a lot of those foods. Um, But the analysis was anything in the top 10 ingredients uh, was in the analysis from the FDA. So so that that became my criteria. Um, And I think the other thing to to know, so a lot of grain-free foods have uh, subsequently added taurine to their formulas uh, since this um, spike in DCM cases in 2018 and 2019. Um, But taurine is also actually naturally very, very high in organ meat and much lower in muscle meat. So it's another reason for looking for that sort of whole prey ratio type approach to dog food. And then I also want to provide a little bit of context. So the 500, oh, sorry, it was 560 cases now that I have this in my notes in front of me. Uh, 560 cases um, over... Uh, like a year and a half of reporting. Um, And it's probably dramatic underreporting, right? There's probably 10 times more cases of dilated cardiomyopathy that were not reported to the FDA. Um, So it's it's still probably dramatic underreporting, but there's an estimated 77 million dogs in the USA. So we're still talking about a teeny tiny fraction of a percent, you know, something like 0.1% 
0.0006% or something like that of, of dogs that this is affecting. Um, compared to a lot of other health issues that dogs have that a unhealthy diet might be contributing to, for example, something like 50% of dogs will get cancer in their lifetime. Um, and we know, at least from human studies, that there is a link between nutrient deficiencies and cancer risk. So it's another sort of, to me, um, I don't want anything bad to happen to my puppy because um, I believe this is uh, number 3,923 that I've mentioned this. I'm really, really in love with her. She's really wonderful. Um, so I'm looking to reduce the risk of everything bad that could happen to her. And that includes cancer and diabetes and, you know, arthritis. Most dogs will develop arthritis at some point in their lives, especially in old age. And that includes dilated uh, cardiomyopathy. So what I did in going to choose a food, and I'm happy to share um, the the total of my research because I I, I really did spend about 16 hours. I am not exaggerating. It was about 16 hours where I was just reading dog food ingredients, um, looking for one that met the following criteria. So I was looking for a nutrient-dense food, right? That nutrient density is still, I think, the most important concept for di determining diet quality. I was looking for a brand that had that whole prey ratio type approach. Um, and I was looking for that sort of 85, 15 animal food ingredients to plant food ingredients, but also looking for um, a food that had a lot of different variety in it so that there was a lot of different animals with the whole prey ratio and there was some fish and there was a lot of different plant foods so that there's a variety of um, phytochemicals. Um, probiotics was also on my like wish list um, because they would naturally get exposed to some probiotics by eating the intestines of their prey. So that's something that can be added to a kibble type food. Um, I was also looking for a food that didn't have too much protein. So even though it's high animal ingredients, it's not high protein because too much protein can be really hard on a dog's kidneys. So no more than about 40% protein. And I was looking for a food where if it had legumes, legumes had to be at least 11 ingredients down. So the top 10 ingredients had to um, all be meat, animal food ingredients. Um, and then once I isolated the the kibble that I would use, the other thing that I'm doing is also giving a mixed diet so that not every meal is kibble. Um, so some meals are kibble because it's, it is really easy and wonderful. Um, I'm buying a different flavor each time of the same brand that I've found. Um, but then I'm also doing, um, I'm actually doing, it's rather than doing wet, like canned wet food, I'm doing a rehydrated freeze-dried food because the freeze-drying process preserves nutrients better than the canning process. Um, so she's getting a, at least one wet food meal a day as well. And then I'm mixing up the nutrients with uh, training treats and, and chews. So I ended up choosing to go with Origin. They're not the only good brand out there. Um, and Stacey, what you're using for, for Penny, I think is a, another really high quality brand. Um, but Origin basically checked every single box of what I was looking for. And so it was, um, it was, it was like such relief to find like the, the first legume ingredient is number, I think 17 on their ingredients list. Um, they have, um, 
uh, animal meals in their ingredients list, but they're not extra dates. So they're not processed in that way that makes them less digestible. What they really mean is that it includes, right, some of the bone and cartilage. Um, so they're really trying to, um, trying to use everything that's usable from the animal. Um, and then they have, you know, some, a great variety of really high quality plant foods. And one of the things that they don't have to do with all of those high quality ingredients is throw a ton of vitamins and minerals in as added ingredients. Um, but the other thing that I'm doing, um, on the advice of my vet is I am giving her, uh, a taurine supplement. Um, so my vet recommended Vetroscience cardio, uh, cardio strength supplement, which contains taurine, but also carnitine, glycine, vitamin E, um, EPA, which is a long chain omega-3 fatty acid, CoQ10, uh, gamma linoleic acid, uh, vitamin B9, magnesium, potassium, and selenium. So they're all really important nutrients for heart and actually liver health as well. And uh, my plan is to give her that supplement uh, at least until she's full grown. So, you know, looking at the strain on the body of this rapid growth phase and making sure that she is getting all of the nutrients that she could possibly need. And so, I mean, really, I think the food is probably high quality enough that she doesn't need the supplement, but I also feel like the supplement's not going to hurt. And, um, and it potentially has the, the benefit to, to help dramatically. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I'm trying to mix things up with training treats. Her favorite is just, I've got um, this pastured turkey breast that I bought when it went on sale after Thanksgiving that was so gamey that my, my, I couldn't eat it. My family couldn't eat it. I tried, you know, hiding it in stews. I tried, like I tried so many things. I tried throwing a ton of spices on it and every meal that I made with it, um, was just not, I mean, we still ate it because we don't waste food in this house, but it was, it was really gamey. So I ended up just leaving it in my freezer and turns out, uh, Soka loves gamey meat. That's her favorite. I can get her to do just about anything for that. So I cooked it in an Instapot and then chopped it up and she gets little tiny little bits um, for training. And then I found some other really high quality training treats. Um, grizzly smoked wild salmon training treats. It's, you know, salmon ingredients with a little bit of gelatin and kelp and vitamin E. Um, Pupford liver training treats. It's just beef liver, beef heart, and a little bit of vitamin E as a preservative. And their sweet potato treats are just sweet potato. Um, and recall, you know, dogs are fairly well adapted to starch, so I, I don't feel bad giving her those at all. Um, and then I just ordered, I just found them. Um, and uh, Krissa, my chief operations officer, uh, recommended them to me after finding them for her dogs was uh, vital essential freeze-dried minnows. They're whole minnows, little tiny fish. Um, and so I'm really excited about those. I have a feeling my dog, uh, unlike Penny, um, is ridiculously excited about food. I have, she has yet to meet an edible or even non-edible thing that she won't try to eat. Um, <laughs> she rocks. like. She, <laughs> including rocks. I have pulled probably 10 rocks out of her mouth now. Um, but she, like she, when I, when it's mealtime, when she even hears the sound of stainless steel tapping on something, like she gets super excited because she thinks it's her bowl. Um, so when I pick up her bowl to fill it for a meal, she starts doing these like zoomies running around the house. She follows me. She knows where the food is, but she like does this like extra loop because she can't contain her excitement. And she just starts like jumping up in the air. She's not jumping on me because we've been pretty clear that that's not cool. Um, but she can't 
she can't contain her excitement. So she just like does this like bunny hop jump in the air um, with this like play bark yelp. But it's just like, it's just excitement. Like you can't, she can't contain it. And I'm teaching her um, manners. So she, I don't put her bowl down until she sits nicely which is so hard for her. And you can just see her like shaking with excitement, waiting for this bowl to get put down. And I'm trying to find ways. She literally will eat her dinner in like uh, wet food. It takes maybe like three or four minutes, but her, her kibble meals, it's like 20 seconds. I it's so fast. She pretty much is like just a vacuum cleaner. So we're trying all kinds of different things to get her to slow down, doing some hand feeding, which, also good for preventing resource guarding. Um, and also like doing things like this morning, I put a tennis ball in her bowl, which maybe made it take her 40 seconds to eat her food instead of 20. So, you know, that was super helpful. I've tried giving her her meals in a snuffle mat. Um, like it's just, yeah, she's, uh, she's super food motivated, um, which is probably one of the reasons why she's been so easy to, to train. Cause she's like super smart and will do anything for food. Um, like I can take her for a walk, go down a street we've never been before and have a dog walking across the road. And I, if I, if I pull out food, she is locked on me and she will do all of her tricks. So, um, so that's really unusual <laughs> for a dog to be that, like that food motivated. It's crazy. Um, and you know, probably why I'm going to be able to train her to do hundreds of different stuff things. Um, but that's, that's been my approach, um, is to, um, to really basically, uh, take that sort of nutrient density approach, the whole prey ratio, and then round out her diet, really do like a mixed diet. So it's not just kibble and then round it out with as many sort of high quality ingredients, but also really different ingredients. So not just the same training treat every time. Um, she also is getting natural chews, um, like grass fed beef bone, naturally shed deer antler. I just ordered her some beef trachea. Um, so everything that I'm trying to do with her is about, um, nutrient density, and nutrient variety, which are the same principles of how I choose my own foods. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think one of the things that I love about all of these dog foods that you and I feed to our dogs is that it is helping the sustainability and the respecting of animals that I feel really passionately about with our food um, supply chain. And, you know, we've talked about this many times. I wrote beyond bacon because of it right like eating nose to tail is super important and what I love is that not only are our dogs getting all this nutrient density and things that you've talked about that they need but it's also helping to take care of uh, the supply of animal parts that humans aren't eating and Mm -hmm. um, so thank you dogs for (laughs) helping us respect the whole animal and a lot of um, these parts like these beef parts and stuff so um, like I mentioned we we really struggled for almost a year in figuring out what to feed Penny. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, you and I have had so many conversations about it. And um, we started off transitioning her to a higher quality kibble because she came to us on what I will call the fast food of dog food kibble. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, we also we took two weeks to transition her off of the food that she came with yes Yes. and so the easiest thing was kibble because that's what she was Mm -hmm. used to um and so we found um Stella and Chewy's is the brand that um we 
switched her to and ended up coming back to after a long cycle, um, which I'll talk more about. But um, so we put her on. They had a puppy kibble that was higher quality. It was ingredients that I felt good about. And um, I didn't want her to be on kibble long term, but that was intended to be a transition for her. Um, And to get her to like it because the fast food kibble um, had much higher uh, palatability, so to speak, we would mix in like ghee or we would mix in um, really gelatinized broth or we would mix in homemade gravy. Like we would um, originally we were putting heavy cream over top, like anything that we had in the fridge that would help her be less underweight and um, would make it more palatable. But the problem is, is that we, whether we adapted her palate that way or whether she was always a high maintenance dog, she then got accustomed to things tasting delicious. And when we wouldn't put that stuff on, then she wouldn't eat our food. Like, where's my heavy cream? Yes. Uh, And yeah. And while she is extremely food motivated for treats, like um, her dehydrated liver is her absolute favorite. Like nothing else included, just we get bags of dehydrated liver and she'll, she goes nuts for it. Um, But her food is an entirely different thing. Like she, she went almost four days without eating before I caved. Like I was like, this is not okay. She's already (gasps) underweight. Like, cause we were trying to take her transition away and she would have like a bite or two and then she'd be like nope like you don't eat all your dinner you'll eat it for breakfast yes so because the vet was telling us like you just you just need to not give her that stuff and she'll eventually eat and it it felt a little bit like sleep training with babies like Mm -hmm. someone has one philosophy and someone had another philosophy and me as a dog mom I just had to say like no this doesn't feel right (laughs) you know like my dog is and and what works for one dog or kid yeah right so I had one kid who um would have starved to death if I had done the whole, this is the only thing there is to eat and you eat this or you go hungry. She would have been like, fine, I go hungry. Um, because eating something, and it was because she had sensory processing disorder. Like there, there was a lot of underlying stuff going on there that we didn't really understand at the time, but she literally like would have just been, I mean, she was borderline failure to thrive as it was at one years old. And then my other kid, you, you can just go, no, sorry, that's what there is to eat. And eventually, oh, all right, fine. And she'll, you know, gag her way through it, but she'll eat it anyways. And so having had two very different kids, um, the thing that I really learned from that is it's really important to understand all of the different strategies because it's not just that one is better or worse. It's that it has to work for both you and for the child. And it has it has to fit with the dynamic of the two of you. And I've treated even like dog training the same. I have done a ton of research and I've uh, different positive, different variations of positive training. And I am using something in between that seems to be working really well for Soka and for me. And it's that, um, I think it's, it's really important to recognize that with a lot of these things, there's no one, one way. And, um, there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be that kid who would, starve to death or apparently that dog who will go four days without eating because they are missing their heavy cream on their food. Yeah. And you know what? She wasn't like, uh, she didn't have an attitude about it either. Like she has an attitude about, about going on <laughs> walks when it's cold outside or raining. Like she, she knows how to, how to throw some shade. She didn't have shade about the food. She just was like, 
nah, not nah. interested. You know, like just <laughs> no. Nah. And occasionally she'd come back and sniff it and she'd be like, nope, <laughs> still, still not good not. enough. Still not good enough. So what I ended up doing um, is uh, getting her Stella and Chewy's, um, they have like a stew that you can put on top of the kibble. And so this was a way for us to give her it's human grade and um it would go like on top of the kibble and then we mixed it up and the problem with that is mostly that it's expensive (laughs) because you're essentially like I could make a stew at home and put it in small containers and freeze it and it would save me a ton of money but she was eating that she only liked two there was like a variety of I think like 10 or 12 (laughs) she only liked two um I'm telling you, my dog is really high maintenance with food and that's okay. Like everybody's going to have a different dog experience. Right. So, and, and I want to emphasize that Penny was underweight. And so that it was really important for us to figure out how -hmm. to get her to eat something that was both, in my opinion, healthful as well as, you know, could be enough nutrients for her to both put on weight and, and to, you know, be nutrient sufficient. So we put this um, stew on top of the kibble and then, then she was happy for a while, like not just for a while, she was happy, but it was expensive and um, cumbersome because it came in like something that was uh, metal lined, the pouches that they come in, it's more than one serving. So you have to refrigerate it, but then you can't just like microwave it and her bowl is metal. And so we'd have to like put it in something else and heat it up and then mix it with her kibble. And it was like a 10 minute charade just to feed the dog. It was like a whole thing. So um, I started looking into additional things that we could feed her. And that's when I shared with you what we ended up going with our Mm -hmm. long-term and she absolutely loves, and it's so much easier for us, are these freeze-dried patties. And the still by Stella and Chewy, so it had the same flavor profile for her. Um, And it does have taurine added, which I really liked. It has, you know, kelp and a lot of the things that you talked about. It's really clean for a dog food. Um, it does have, um, plant-based as well as meat-based, um, mixed in there. And so we, what we do is we crumple up the patties and then we just add a little bit of hot water. We have like one of those, um, what do they call those hot faucet spigot things on our sink for. (laughs) Yep. That's what they call it. A tea maker. That's what I call it. <laughs> hot faucet spigot thing. Yes. Uh, listeners right now are, are shouting out what I can't think of. But um, <laughs> anyway, we have one of those. And so we're able to add just like a, a tad bit of that hot water, which is warm when it first comes out and not super hot, um, to her food, which was a tip from you, Sarah. Because the problem that we were having originally is that we would crumple those patties up over the kibble, because remember, we're still trying to transition her off that kibble. Um, And then I think it was just so dry for her. She would eat the patties, but then she would kind of like pick around the kibble and it wasn't enough food. Like when I was looking at, you know, the quantity that she needed in order to put on more weight, like she wasn't getting enough. And so when you and I talked, this was just like a few months ago, um, you were like, well, you know, you can also prepare it by adding water. And my my brain exploded. And I was like, why (laughs) didn't I think of that? Like, that's what she wants is like that moisture, right? Like the the stew was moisture, the um, gravy was moisture, the cream was moisture all of it was like made it palatable in her mouth and so the minute that we added just a little water to those patties she became thrilled and I will say that um 90% of the time we add 
like two spoonfuls of rice for her just because a it's a it's a gluten-free grain um and b it is another source of um nutrients that she needs um but also like she's still what I would call on the low side of normal weight um Mm -hmm. you know you can still like see her ribs a little bit so I'm not worried about giving her too many um filler calories so to speak I'm like just whatever you need just eat it eat it eat it and um so we cook her rice and broth once a week and we just like leave it in the fridge and that's Penny's food and so we're able to you know put like basically two spoonfuls of rice a couple of dinner patties add a little bit of water stir it up and it takes one minute and it's way more than I anticipated doing for a pet and every time we feed Penny I make jokes about you know Oprah's dogs I don't know listeners (laughs) if you haven't seen that clip please YouTube it because this is like way back in the day before clean dog food was a thing and Oprah was sharing about it which thank you Oprah good for you um but at the same time like her dogs had their own chef you know what I mean (laughs) I'm like here we are making Penny's food little spoiled doggy um but she is also, um, like I said, treat motivated. And um, I we found at this point, because she likes Stella and Chewy's and we trust their ingredients, like they have treats and they have different kinds of things. Dehydrated liver is her favorite. But um, we've been able to find that as a picky dog, she likes that stuff. They do sell, I don't know if you know this, Sarah, but they do sell like dehydrated um Sweet potatoes, like you can get like a bag mm-hmm. of it mixed with um, dehydrated uh, bananas and different kinds of things. So we tried all that. She literally, <laughs> she'll do the trick and then she'll leave the treat on the floor. Like she won't oh. even eat it. Poor Penny. <laughs> Just like all that work for this. I mean, and she'll, yeah. she'll give you snark about it too. She'll look at you like, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's very much the opposite of Soka. Soka, um, again, she, she's also at uh, this morning on her walk, she carried a pine cone home with her, um, for like two blocks. Like it, it was a long way. She carried the pine cone home with her. And then, oh, we got into the backyard and, um, she went to her, uh, I call it her pile spot. Cause she's got just this one spot of lawn where she will, um, when she's done playing fetch, cause she's got a natural retrieve, which is really fun. But when she's done, she just takes her toy over to the spot to lie down and chew and she'll start bringing things to her pile. And so I've called, called it the pile spot. So she brought the pine cone to her pile spot to sit and just start munching on it. And I was like, Oh, it was so cute that you brought this toy home, but I cannot let you eat pine cone. That is not very digestible. I told you she was going to love pine cone. My, <sighs> I mentioned on the last dog show that I grew up with a very similar breed of dog. Um, and the new fees love water and they love chewing on pine cones, <laughs> pine cones, pine straw, leaves of any kind, branches sticks i'm like and the whole time i'm like no like you could get slivers and i'm spending all this time like well let me check that stick and see how green the wood is okay this one's pretty green you can have this one for five minutes but then i have to still have to take it away because then you'll get in through the you know bark and you'll i'll sometimes um sometimes think that something is like much better and i'll look at her and i'm like uh you've made sawdust good job let me have that back now um so no she's a very (laughs) she's uh, still learning what are toys. Let's let's put it that way. She's only 11 weeks old. She's got she's got a ways to go. Um, 
as we wrap up this podcast, I should mention that Soka has her own Instagram account. <laughs> because, of course uh, <laughs> because, you know, the thing is, is I've got all of these adorable photos and videos, and I could not, in good consciousness, make the Paleo Mom social media accounts suddenly be just about dogs because that is not the resource that they're intended to be. Uh, you know, put a lot of effort into making my social media accounts like really awesome conversation starters and places where you can get really valuable information. So turning that into here's my cute dog. While some people might enjoy it, it's just definitely not, <laughs> definitely not the plan. So no, I created her own Instagram account. So it's just a place for me to uh, put fun photos of her. It's um, at Soka PWD, so S-O-K-A-P-W-D for Portuguese water dog. And uh, you're welcome to follow her. I don't know how long I will keep doing it for, basically until, like, this is this is just a fun thing for me. It is a hobby. And so my um, I am not promising to be um, diligent or <laughs> consistent. And I might just decide that I'm not interested in anymore in a few months, or maybe she'll get more Instagram followers than I have and be like a dogs of Instagram superstar. One of those two things could happen. Um, if she becomes a dogs of Instagram superstar, obviously I will have to then more diligent and consistent. Um, but, uh, yeah, so she's, there's already some really adorable videos and, and photos on there. Um, and there are about a week behind real life just because that's the way I roll. I considered getting Penny her own Instagram and I was like, no, I, my, my account is much more just us and our life. And I was like, Penny is my life. <laughs> I'm just yeah. going to share her when I want. She already fits in yeah. to that one account. Yeah. Although, I, I did not have that. Although she's not a puppy anymore. So she doesn't get as much screen time as yeah. she once did. But um, I, I will say that this show was very focused on um dog food so if you need the same rundown on cats like <laughs> let us know um sarah and i have been longtime cat pet owners and so mm -hmm. i'll just say while we haven't prescribed a show um we both feed our cats origin cat food if you're wondering yes so um Origin is also, I think, what would be called semi-raw. So, like, two-thirds of their meat ingredients are, are raw. Um, so, for me, that's, like, a really great balance of the benefits of raw and the benefits of cooked in all-in-one. Um, so, yeah. No, uh, I – again, it was sort of like, oh, the same conclusion I made with cat food I'm making with dog food, but only and after 16 hours of research. <laughs> We'll put links in the show notes. This show was not sponsored by any of the brands that we're mentioning. We, as always, tell you what we use and why in a genuine sort of way, whether something is sponsored or not. So um, you feel free to check both of those out. And I think we're going to put some links in the show notes as well to um, websites where you can purchase them from at mm -hmm. um, 
you know, like coupon codes, referral codes, different kinds of things like that. If you want to get like, you know, money off your first purchase and um, different things like that. I know um, like Amazon subscribe and save is different than, you know, some of these other options where you could potentially get all of them. So we'll put some links in the show notes in case you're trying to figure out like the best place to um, set up this to be delivered for you. I know I used to just go to our local dog store because I loved to spoil her and let her pick out a rawhide and a toy. That that would have been in the olden days. It was the olden days. <laughs> so yeah. now we've moved to um, online purchasing of food and we'll be happy to share where we do that. And I know, Sarah, you have um, places that you recommended to me as well. So we'll put all of that in the show notes for you. That was a really long show about dog food. We do you remember when we once said we wanted to like like get, shorten show our shows back? and mm-hmm. rein them in? Yeah, but I think our listeners know what to expect at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can see the length of the show in their in their podcast feeds before they commit to listening. So yeah, the cat the cat people saw that it was a dog food show that was an hour and twenty minutes long, and they were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> So for those of you that are still here, all the dog people are like super excited and they were like, if only it was a visual podcast so we could watch like random videos of the dogs the whole time. Fist fist bump to those of you still hanging in. (laughs) We'll be back again next week, maybe with a show that, you know, is 40 minutes or two hours. You never know. (laughs) But we appreciate Uh, you being here. Knowing, knowing next week's topic, it'll be another deep dive. All right. Well, you heard it from Sarah first. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Um, okay. I'm excited to learn. Are you ready? Uh, yes, I am ready. Totally ready. I can string together words and form sentences. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.